0: there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 116, Conflicted Colossus. I am excited for today's episode because today marks the start of Season 1's final miniseries. Yes, today it's finally time to break down the United States and its contributions, or lack thereof, to the attempts at establishing a successful peace during the 1920s. And that phrase, lack thereof, is why I've also been kind of dreading doing this miniseries because what the U.S. was famous for during the 20s was its commitment to isolationism and non-involvement, or at least its commitment not to be wrapped up in the sordid affairs of Europeans. So the history goes the United States spent the 20s disengaged from global affairs, shunning the League of Nations that so many of its own politicians and citizens had helped devise and advocate for, which would mean that I don't really have much to relay to you for these episodes, but that's only part of the story. Yes, America abdicated its place as a world leader, but it didn't disengage totally. As we have already covered, when direct American interests were at stake, its leaders, regardless of political affiliation, were more than happy to assert themselves. The Washington Naval Conference and all the naval wrangling in the ensuing years was a prime example of ongoing engagement. It's just that the U.S. had a specific interest in naval affairs, given their sphere of influence in the Pacific, and growing fears over Japan. You could get the Americans on board, you just had to have something within their narrow set of interests to actually work on. Endless talks of disarmament and collective security were perpetual turnoffs for a nation that barely kept a standing army and harbored no ambitions of territorial expansion. The US was and is a big nation with bountiful natural resources and a hefty remove from any potential dangers. When people like the French shrieked about German aggression, it was hard for most of the U.S. to summon more than a shrug. Petty squabbles over strips of land seemed like a waste of time and a thing of the past on account of America's own frontier having been long since won. And the twin drivers of economic abundance and political indifference were the two hallmarks of the U.S. in the 20s. On one hand, the economy boomed to such an extent that America became the world's factory with dizzying outputs and a focus on mass consumption. On the other hand, the nation's politicians were an unambitious lot, perfectly content with kicking back and watching the economy grow at unequaled rates. Which, yes, does all play into the eventual Great Depression, but that's for the end of the series. I should probably start off with an introduction to America going into 1919. Because if its role in making or breaking the general peace was a mostly passive one, its internal affairs very much so were not. America was a land in transition in the first few decades of the 20th century, and by 1919, it had gone through decades of social and political change that would result in a lot of soul-searching. And not the peaceful kind of soul-searching either. The first two-thirds of the 1800s had been spent on two things, securing the Pacific frontier and what to do about slavery. That last one is actually a new element for me to cover specific to the United States because while all the other great powers have had minorities to oppress, none had an institution quite like slavery. Yes, Russia came depressingly close with their serfs, but that was different, and moreover got rectified in a big old way. It may seem like I'm going off on a side tangent from the get-go here, but the consequences of slavery are a constant in American life and influence its politics in ways history books often leave out. That legacy will also directly cause some major events I'll be covering in this mini-series, so I'm going to introduce the broad topic now. Chattel slavery in the American South infamously formed the bedrock of the regional economy, with enslaved Africans, and the enslaved came exclusively from Africa, working vast southern plantations. The peak of this practice came during the years of King Cotton, which itself came about due to the Industrial Revolution first taking off in the U.K., In the UK, like almost every industrializing nation, the first commodity to be mass-produced was textiles, and that created a sudden, pressing demand for cotton. The American South, already plugged into British trade, was happy to oblige. It became both a profitable enterprise and also an economic trap that would doom millions of souls to nightmarish lives, picking cotton year in, year out. I say it was a trap because the american south came to rely on the plantation system to the detriment of other industries if slavery were to go away then they assumed they'd have to completely reorganize how their economy functioned basically having to be more like the north and they weren't willing to do that in the face of increasing calls throughout the rest of the nation to abolish slavery the southern elite turned inwards and adopted a siege mentality southerners sought to break the perceived blockade on slavery by expanding West and maybe even into the Caribbean. Slavery would be protected by expanding its scope. The problem that was run into was that expanding South meant tangling with foreign powers and bigger populations that would be difficult to contend with and would require the nation to present a united front to such a project. That wasn't going to happen for the sake of slavery. The West was also a non-starter, not just because of abolitionist resistance, but because the prairies, mountains, and deserts of the American West were ill-suited to slavery. The plantation system was viable in basically one region of the country, and it had hit its limits. The Southern elites saw the writing on the wall long-term and eventually decided to force the issue. They used the pretext of President Lincoln's election as their cue to make for the national exits starting in December of 1860, and by spring of next year, the nation was ass-deep in its civil war. And the civil war is the fulcrum point from which American history swings. What came before was an unwieldy collection of local interests and shared desires for westward expansion and a whole lot of bickering and indecision otherwise. The Civil War saw the Union government take on more responsibility than it ever had and militarize the country more than it had ever been. And while those conditions were not permanent, it did demonstrate that they were possible. Ultimately, the Civil War achieved three things that would dominate American life for the next several generations. First was that slavery was abolished And the african-american population was freed this was unequivocally a good thing and finally addressed a wrong that had plagued the nation since its inception the devil as always though was in the details the initial abolition of slavery had carried with it blanket rights for former slaves that came closer to full equality than any other time before the equal rights act now this wasn't because northerners cared about american blacks No, they were by and large disdainful of all non-whites, just as their southern counterparts were. But the black population in America was overwhelmingly concentrated in the south, and black empowerment would help keep the traitorous southern whites on the back foot, and, and would all be well away from northern communities. The problem was that, again, most northerners didn't care too much about the people they had emancipated. As the occupation of the south was wound down a little over a decade after the war's end, the political will outside the South to safeguard the rights of African Americans just wasn't there. Moreover, looking the other way, while Southern whites steadily tore away at the rights of the Black population, netted the Northerners political cooperation from those Southern whites. The early promise of equality between races was ruined by this erosion, as well as targeted violence by whites against blacks. By the latter part of the century, this oppression was codified in what are broadly known as the Jim Crow Laws, those statutes that segregated whites and blacks from each other, as well as disenfranchising the black population in general. These laws were upheld by the Supreme Court in the latter 1800s, with the legal argument being the two races were separate but equal in the eyes of the law. This was a cruel joke, as blacks were very much not equal in the eyes of the white men who controlled the law, but that was the status quo that was settled upon. Blacks would form their own separate communities, their own neighborhoods, and prosper as best they could which was still a dicey prospect, even in isolation. Outside their communities, blacks were still constant targets of violence and murder, and their larger communities would even become targets from time to time. Blacks would organize by the early 1900s, with the most famous organization being the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, which advocated for an end to segregation and discrimination. But that was all a work very much in its infancy, And African Americans had a harrowing road still ahead of them, a journey that is still incomplete into the present day. And again, to understand the context of the United States in this period, it is vital to always remember the incredible amount of racial violence that was always present. And there were other types of racism, don't get me wrong. Naturally born Americans had a distaste for any other non-white, in addition to Jews and Europeans outside of those from Western Europe. It's just that black Americans were far and away the most common target of those hatreds. The second effect of the Civil War was the long-term political dominance of the Republican Party. The Republicans were actually a young party by the time of the Civil War, only being founded in 1854, but they would dominate American politics with only periodic breaks until the Great Depression. Part of that was because their rivals, the Democratic Party, were the party of the South. And since the South got wrecked in the Civil War and had military occupation imposed on it, the Republicans by default dominated the years to follow. There were certainly Northern Democrats, and they remained active even during the years of the Civil War. But especially during the Reconstruction years in the post-war era, it was the GOP that was in the driver's seat. One effect of the Northern occupation of the South and the granting of civil rights to African Americans was Southern whites effectively swearing generations-long political allegiance to the Democrats. While they spent interludes in the greater wilderness of the American government, the Southern Democrats were far and away the most reliable voting bloc in the country. And when combined with fitful Democratic support in the rest of the nation, meant that they were usually at least within striking distance of the presidency and Congress. Which in turn meant that while Republicans were in charge, they had to work with them to keep the ship of state running smoothly. Which goes back to that toleration for rampant outlawry when it came to Southern whites' treatment of African Americans. Also, keep in mind that presidential elections had different dynamics before the Great Depression. The South would always go Democrat, while the North predominantly went Republican. There were here and there a few northern states in play that could swing to the Democrats, and overall the popular vote was typically close between the two parties until 1904, when Teddy Roosevelt started disrupting everything by sheer force of personality. And it's worth pointing out that the two political parties weren't polarized by ideology so much either. By the early 1900s there were progressives among both the democrats and republicans, while at the same time conservatives in both parties as well. Because at their heart they all supported free enterprise, it's just that some on both sides did favor government intervention to smoothen the rough edges of capital to save it from itself, which would become more of a story towards the end of the century. The third big consequence of the Civil War that I'll bring up was the supercharging of the American economy. This was a process already underway before the Civil War, as farming output was exploding even before 1861, creating a labor surplus before the fighting got underway. The war had the effect of pumping money into the economy via government spending, which, once things got settled post-war, got reinvested into manufacturing. That, and transportation, as the railroad truly allowed the U.S. government to grapple with the expansive landmass it had acquired. It also allowed it to relentlessly exterminate any of the Native Americans who dared resist its constant encroachments westwards. Railroads opened the frontier, and the gravity of the nation's population centers shifted away from the eastern seaboard. This trend was reinforced by a constant influx of immigrants, leaving the overcrowded slums of Europe and grasping at a better future in the United States. London bankers also saw an opportunity, and while they usually didn't raise stakes and move, they did helpfully provide loans to American businesses. India might have been the crown jewel of the British Empire, but the vast network of foreign investments was a big, shiny rock unto itself, and the U.S. accounted for a big proportion of the economic attention. America had it all, an expanding population, vast and productive farmlands, and bottomless stockpiles of natural resources like lumber, coal, and iron. A big exception to the economic expansion was the American South, which after the Civil War never properly recovered economically. Also important to note, these gains were not shared equally, as just like in Europe, the actual workers of these enterprises were overworked, underpaid, and always in or close to poverty. The influx of immigrants created further strains. With people constantly coming into the cities, management always had a pool of cheap labor available that they could exploit. Mouth off to the boss, and you were liable to be replaced with a guy from Poland or Greece. Elites stoked these tensions keeping all kinds of boundaries in place between Americans. In the South, poor whites were pitted against poor blacks. In the North, immigrants of every background were pitted against each other, with the added wrinkle of Asian communities appearing in the West. An unscrupulous operator could sow distrust between South Europeans and Eastern ones, all the while convincing the two groups that he was their friend. The native-born Americans would view the newcomers with suspicion, none more so than the petite bourgeois. The well-off, but not too well-off, would prove to be fearful of a loss of status and prosperity in changing times, and were quick to blame it on the newbies. America was a melting pot, which meant it was constantly in flux and hot enough to burn through steel. It didn't help either that the economic growth was uneven over the decades, with cyclical recessions keeping workers living in fear of losing their meager paychecks. The big role of government in this time was doling out favors to the well-connected and providing cheap land to those heading out west. For generations, it was uninterested in regulating the affairs of business, believing that the market would sort working conditions and wages out by itself. That the constant stream of immigrants prevented a stable labor market from forming was ignored, and the American worker was left to fend for himself. The abject misery of the American proletariat, much like their counterparts in Europe, did lead to organization among the working class. And this brings us to a development that arose as U.S. industry expanded—unions. The problem for American unions, though, was the sheer scale of the United States. Creating national-level organizations that could press for meaningful change was a far more daunting prospect than in the more compact proletariats of Europe. The decades after the Civil War saw first local unions come together— and then eventually groups like the National Labor Union and the Knights of Labor that could claim national preeminence. But these national groups were hobbled by member unions who did not get along, or in the case of the Knights, a rapid expansion that left it badly organized when it actually met pushback from elites. The American Federation of Labor, the AFL, had a slower buildup, but didn't fade into obscurity like the others. Under leadership of Samuel Gompers, it built up its membership over the last two decades of the 1800s, to where its membership was a half million by 1900. By the end of World War I, it had expanded to 4 million members. But even this success came with caveats. The AFL in those years focused on recruiting from smaller firms, who would be less likely to resist a strike, opting to avoid the big factory floors. The Umbrella Group also organized its member unions by craft, creating a clear picking order within the proletariat based on technical skill. Gombers himself was opposed to socialism, and sought concessions from owners, not an overturning of their power. European socialism, this wasn't, which marks out American labor compared to what you may be used to so far on this podcast. The AFL wasn't the only game in town either, and by 1914, 16% of the industrial workforce was unionized, up from 3% in 1880. And the majority of these groups also avoided associating with socialism. Part of it was violent state crackdowns. As labor organized... The state apparatus, at pretty much every level, mobilized to repress them. Local law enforcement was reinforced with state militias, which were occasionally backed by federal troops with the purpose of putting down big strikes. It was brutal, and it was effective. It also provided the opportunity for more divide-and-conquer tactics, as unions whose members had better-paying jobs were reluctant to stand in solidarity with strikers who worked more menial positions. It was very much an F-you-got-mine situation, which was, you know, very American. I bring this up mostly because compared to all the European examples I've covered, labor agitation in America was much more a non-factor. Not absent entirely, but the unity wasn't there for the proletariat to challenge the status quo the way their European counterparts did. Workers did see overall gains during the years leading up to World War I, though, despite the occasional bloodbath and class betrayal from their fellows. By the closing years of the 1800s it was obvious to everybody that the conditions created by unchecked commerce couldn't continue not that anybody was advocating for a total overhaul to the system oh no the progressives calling for change were intent on reform not revolution with labor getting more organized by the day laws limiting the length of the workday and conditions on the factory floor were put into place individual states also got in on the reforming action with politicians realizing that they could appeal to lower-class voters by offering them better conditions. Some states offered unemployment benefits and public assistance programs. Progressives in general saw increased access to education and better living conditions as the most sure-fire fixes in the long term to numerous social ills plaguing the day. Reduced work hours, higher wages, access to schooling, and better rights all might seem middle-of-the-road efforts, and they kind of were, but they also represented a shift in how some American elites viewed their government. Up until the end of the 1800s, the vast majority of American politicians saw it as their mission to limit the reach of the government, whether it was at the state or federal level. The relatively sudden enlargement of the American economy opened the eyes of many to the possibilities of being a little more hands-on. For decades, big business was the true power in America, buying up politicians like trinkets and bringing vast fortunes to the bank accounts of their owners. The progressives in both political parties, and especially in the case of Theodore Roosevelt, felt that with the nation's wealth having grown so great, that the government now had new responsibilities to meet. In the days when America was a nation of yeoman farmers, an active government probably wasn't too vital. But in the complex world of mass industry, being fed by every kind of resource-gathering operation, all financed by a vastly expanded banking system, well, the times had changed, and it was time to change how the nation was being governed. This wasn't a universal opinion, and the progressives faced plenty of opposition, which, hey, would reassert itself for the 20s, so be on the lookout for that, but changes were made nevertheless. The power of big business was stunted in antitrust legislation throughout the country, something that Roosevelt was famous for while president, but was also pursued energetically by his successor, Howard Taft. Regulations were thrown up, not just in the workplace, but in areas like public works and railroads. Oftentimes, these weren't strictly social causes, it was just that standards between the states, and sometimes even within them, were horribly unorganized, and thanks to the massive expansion over the past 50 years, the cities and transportation networks were in dire need of rationalization. Which, again, not the most revolutionary stuff, but this was America. Using the government as a tool, if not to remake society, but to nudge it into a more charitable direction, was still something new. The closest example was during the Civil War, and that was strictly a wartime mobilization to achieve military objectives. This was a peacetime movement that left some conservative feathers ruffled. But by the early 1900s, reformism was immensely popular with a citizenry that was itself ready to see the power of state enhanced. Progressivism dominated from the election of President William McKinley in 1896 and eventually ended with a whimper with Woodrow Wilson's last years in office. Part of this enthusiasm for state power might have also stemmed from events abroad, because as Americans were becoming more affluent, they also became more connected with the outside world and while they might have insisted on being disdainful of complicated foreign affairs, most realized they couldn't be ignored entirely. And it was a dangerous world that the U.S. was finding itself in. There had been a mad scramble for Africa in the last two decades of the 1800s by the Europeans, a shameless display that, to its credit, America didn't partake in. But America had traditional interests in the Western Hemisphere, namely in keeping Europeans from enroaching any further than they already had, as well as ensuring governments friendly to American economic interests were in power throughout Latin America. The Progressive Era would also be the Stepping Outside Era for the U.S. The expansion of economic power domestically had inverted the old calculus. By 1890, America was shedding its reliance on foreign capital for investment, as the domestic money supply was enough to fund new ventures by itself. In fact, the abundance of capital within the U.S. was great enough that the business class began turning its attentions overseas, especially into Latin America and the Pacific. Investment began abroad, as well as an ever-larger flow of American products to overseas markets. Just as the progressives were building up state power, there were interests abroad that needed protecting, and that meant being able to project force. And you probably see where I'm going with this. Yes, this was the start of the overseas American empire and the tool to project overseas force was a navy, which by the early 1890s was in terrible shape. The U.S. Navy had hardly been updated since the Civil War and paled in comparison to mighty naval powers of the day like the Ottoman Empire and China, which, oof, that's bad. But hey, America suddenly had a massive steel industry, and the ironmongers were all too supportive of the government bankrolling the construction of new steel behemoths to protect commerce and a war scare with Germany in 1889 over the Samoan Islands provided the impetuous to build a world-class fleet. The first demonstration of power came in 1893, when elements of the Brazilian Navy mutinied and moved to topple the government via a blockade of Rio de Janeiro. Brazil had just four years previously ejected its monarchy and established a republic friendly with the U.S. The rebels, backed by the British, who were themselves fearful of an enhanced American influence at their expense in the region, wanted to restore that monarchy. American businesses, fronted by the Standard Oil Company, demanded the U.S. government intervene to protect their markets in Brazil. The fresh American fleet was deployed alongside merchant ships headed for Rio, and in January 1894, they reached the city. When the rebels moved to block them, the Americans fired warning shots and kept moving. The rebels were hopelessly outmatched and withdrew without a fight. Two follow-up crises in Nicaragua and Venezuela between the US and Great Britain were also resolved in favor of the Americans. The British were tied down all across the world and were being overtaken economically by the Germans at the time, and so they dared not risk getting into a competition with the emerging titan. American hegemony in the Western Hemisphere was underway. The big next step taken was the Spanish-American War. The US was deeply involved in the Cuban sugar industry even though Cuba was still a colony of Spain. The preference had always been for Spain to be responsible for security on the island, while America reaped the economic benefits. But normal Cubans balked at being exploited on miserable sugar plantations and launched a war for independence. For years, the Americans wished the Spanish would get their affairs in order, but by 1898, the U.S. had lost patience. It was also under pressure from a public riled up by muckraking journalists who spread tales of Spanish oppression far and wide. The public wanted Cuba freed, and the business class figured that Cuban partners would work as well as Spanish ones, so long as the sugar flowed. The U.S. warship Maine was in Havana's harbor to protect American property interests there, when the ship suddenly blew up. The incident was blamed on the Spanish, and a war was on by April 1898. This had been something prepared for by the U.S. government in advance, and presented the biggest opportunity for American expansion since the Mexican-American War 50 years prior and the advances of the U.S. were rapid. While the American army had not received the same attention as the Navy had, their dominance at sea was so great that it didn't matter. Spain lacked modern battleships, and what craft it did have were in poor shape and crewed by men lacking motivation to tangle with better-equipped enemies. By default, supremacy in both the Caribbean Sea and the Western Pacific instantly fell to the U.S. And yes, it wasn't just a war for Cuba. From the start of the conflict, American ships were deployed on a long voyage west to the Philippines, the other major remnant of the old Spanish Empire. To secure the way, President McKinley pressed Congress to agree to annexing the Hawaiian Islands. That still independent state had fallen under the dominance of white plantation owners, but Congress in the past had rebuffed calls for annexation. Spurred by war fever and the fear of the islands falling to the Japanese or Germans, Congress voted to annex the islands in July 1898. By then, the Americans were in possession of Cuba, having landed there in early June, although they were quick to leave it in the hands of the Cubans on account of yellow fever outbreaks. Puerto Rico and Guam both fell with barely a struggle, and in August, the Americans landed in the Philippines to discover a widespread revolt already underway there. And the peace treaty made afterwards concluded only four months into the war, the U.S. annexed all those colonies except for Cuba which was because the idea of Cuban independence had been central to the public's enthusiasm for the conflict, so the smart move was to install a Cuban government entirely beholden to American business interests, which is what happened. The prize, though, that was most important for our purposes was the U.S. acquisition of the Philippines. This vast archipelago of over 7,600 islands is situated in a fantastic strategic position smack dab in the middle of the enormous arc created by the Asian mainland and the Indonesian islands. From the port of Manila, all the rich markets of East Asia could be easily reached. Thing was, the U.S. didn't have much initial interest beyond taking Manila for itself. If the British used Singapore and Hong Kong as its entrepots in the East, then Manila could serve the same function for the U.S. The rest of the Philippines, though, was less attractive. As I mentioned, there was a successful independence movement already working at establishing a republic for itself, but then the old imperial brainworm burrowed into the Americans' brains, and they decided to take the whole thing for themselves. The logic was, as you may be familiar with, well, you can't really expect to defend Manila without holding on to Luzon, the island it's situated on, and you can't really expect to hold Luzon without the rest of the islands. The Filipinos took exception to this and picked up their insurgency once again this time against the U.S. From 1899 to 1902, America fought its first campaign in the Asian jungles. And in this instance, it worked out. At least for the United States. It was terrible for the Filipinos. The Filipinos weren't equipped to fight the Americans and their bases were steadily raised to the ground. The war would vastly dwarf the conflict with the Spanish and eventually 120,000 Americans rotated through the Philippines over three years. Over 2,000 Americans... 20,000 Filipino insurgents, and over a quarter million civilians died, that last group mostly to disease outbreaks as the fighting dislocated countless communities. In the face of its first native resistance, the overseas American empire held firm. But while the war officially ended in 1902, the insurgency continued in the scattered islands for years afterwards. The U.S. established a colonial government headed by a governor general, the first of which was future President Howard Taft. And did the usual thing of co opting the native elites to work with them. Trying to make use of islands that they had previously seen little use for other than as a buffer for Manila, American interests started investing, once again, primarily in the sugar industry. The victories in the Philippines came just a couple years before the calculus in the Pacific was changed once again, this time in 1905 and due to the Russo Japanese War. This conflict was important to America because it established Japan as the power to beat in East Asia and the most aggressive threat in the region. Which was ironic, because prior to that, the Japanese Empire had gotten a fair amount of American support. The Japanese were expanding their fleet concurrently to the Americans, and lacked, at first, the facilities to build new battleships, something that American firms were starting to get experience with, and they were happy to fill Japanese orders for warships. The Japanese attack on China was cheered on, as it was seen as a means to break open Chinese markets for everybody, And finally, the expansion of the Japanese economy meant that it became a profitable market for American goods. The war with Russia and the Pacific conquests changed that outlook. Suddenly, the U.S. had real estate all across the Pacific, and it looked like the only ones with the reach and the gumption to take it off their hands were the Japanese. This began a generations long strategy session as America's military minds constantly plotted out scenarios of a war with that empire. The U.S. might have avoided commitments in Europe. But in the Pacific, there was real skin in the game, which drove much of the nation's foreign policy. By the eve of World War I, America was outwardly stronger than it had ever been. The economy was huge, despite the cyclical depressions that had slowed it over the decades since the Civil War. The Navy had grown into one of the largest in the world, and the state had demonstrated it could enforce change at home and conquest abroad. These changes came at an opportune time, as while the U.S. wanted to stay out of World War I, Wars that big have a tendency to suck in every major player possible, and the Americans were no exception. The newfound might would be put to the test, and as we pick up next week, would exceed expectations. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.